Launched in 2006, Mt. Gox was originally a Magic Cards training platform founded by a U.S. computer programmer called Jed McCaleb. In 2010, however, it became one of the world's most popular sites for buying and exchanging cryptocurrencies. By 2014, Mt. Gox was handling over 70% of all Bitcoin transactions worldwide. That same year, Mt. Gox filed for bankruptcy, claiming to have lost around 750,000 Bitcoins, worth today around $19.6 billion. In this episode, Sophie and I will talk about the details of what led up to the failure of Mt. Gox, the legal aftermath, and talk a little bit about how to protect yourself from centralized exchanges near the end. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you can walk away with a little bit more of vital crypto history tucked under your belt. I want to be an ASMR person now. You could do that as like the Crypto Girl side channel, crypto, crypto <laughs> CGA <ASMR>. <laughs> Anyway, this oh my is god, like... I found my new like ADD <laughs> compulsion. I love it. But that's so... Welcome to Tokyo. Welcome to Tokyo. Yes, I'm so excited to be here. It's nice to be face to face rather than screen to screen. So we're in Tokyo, we're recording, and we're actually talking about an event that happened in Tokyo a wee while ago related to crypto. And that's Mt. Gox. Crazy. Yeah. Fun. I mean, not fun, but fun to talk about. Did you know that when I first came to Japan, I was set on finding Mt. Gox? Oh my goodness. This is like 2019. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. And I read like online that it was located in Shibuya, Tokyo. Mm. Me coming from New Zealand, I just came and was like, I'm just going to find it on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and then I realised well. Shibuya is... It's like Times Square for Tokyo. Yeah. I went the other day to watch The Crossing, because I'm basic, and so many lights and billboards. And it's crazy because we're staying in Shinjuku, and Shinjuku's very... I don't know how to describe it. There's no billboards or advertising unless you go into the subway and all the buildings have no names or anything. So Shibuya is like the whole opposite, but they're right next to each other on the map. So yeah. 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 Well, did you I, find it? No, I mean, I was just so naive coming in. I thought that like each building would have its own business, yeah. like New Zealand kind of, yeah. but there's like different businesses on each floor, mm-hmm. which is now seems obvious to me because rental space is so expensive. Yeah. So, Mount Gox, how was it founded? How was it founded? So, it was founded initially by Jed McCaleb, who is who was, was the founder of Ripple um, XRP, yeah. which is another very successful crypto coin. That was in 2010, he launched it, but it wasn't initially a crypto exchange, it was a card exchange, like it, it was called Magic Card Exchange initially. So, and I think it was more like a gamer's vibe. And then you were explaining earlier, indicated that it did. he did kind of switch the business to be able to be a crypto exchange. Mm. But then very quickly, I think he realized that it wasn't really what he wanted to do. So he decided to sell the business. Mm-hmm. And that's where Mark Capellas comes into the story. Uh, and he bought, he bought Mt. Gox in March 2011. Mm. And 
kind of that's where the story of Mount Gox begins. Um, so yeah, Mount Gox became pretty big pretty quickly mm-hmm. because it was one of the only online crypto exchanges. And originally Jed McCaleb, because he was trading like these gaming cards and they would use virtual currency, like a lot of early Bitcoiners, a lot of people who bought Bitcoin in like 2008, and sorry, 2009, um, they were using Bitcoin just for online gaming. Mm-hmm. And that was like their little like nerdy world of stuff. And so Jed McCaleb obviously knew how to use virtual currency and he was like doing these kinds of exchanges for the magic cards and Mm. then it evolved into its own exchange and then it just got like way too big too quickly. So he, Mark Capellas was like a really avid Bitcoiner Mm -hmm. from France. Yes, he was a Frenchman living in Tokyo. Yeah. (laughs) Handed over the reins. Handed over the reins and not too long after the reins were handed over the cracks began to show because in 2011 there were 25,000 bitcoins stolen through a hacking episode from Mt. Gox which was done by the hacker unencrypting the private key so once your private keys are out you're a bit fucked basically the site went down for several days after that so the first hacking episode, 25,000 Bitcoin was stolen, and that obviously, understandably, took the site down for several day- days. But there were two DC heroes that swept in to save Mt. Gox this first time, and that was Roger Vere pa- Roger and Jesse Powell. Yeah. I think we should explain who they are because they are big dogs in the crypto scene. So Jesse Powell is the founder of Kraken. Um, he wasn't the founder of Kraken at oh, that time. Oh, no, he wasn't. He was kind of like in the Bitcoin community at, in like around 2011 and, and stuff. Yeah. And so when Mount Gox was going through all this stuff, like Mark Capellas asked for help from, well, there were people that were willing to help him with what was going on. Yeah. And they were basically like volunteers. They just came in as volunteers. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And I have a feeling that Jesse Powell, after what he saw, Going down at Mount Gox, then he was like, why don't I just make my own exchange? Kraken was formed shortly after. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's a good point to make as well, is that it wasn't around at the time of Mount Gox collapsing in 2011, but was later formed. Jesse Powell was the eventual founder of, or founder of Kraken? Yes. So yeah, so he was the eventual founder of Kraken, but yeah. in 2011 it didn't yet exist. But yeah. I can assu- I can imagine that in back in those days, because Bitcoin wasn't huge yet, it was probably quite an old boys club in the sense that all the big dogs would have known each other. So it makes sense that someone like Roger Ver and Jesse Powell would come to Marco Palace's aid mm-hmm. in that situation. And Roger Ver um, was an early Bitcoin investor, and people call him Bitcoin Jesus, which is kind of, I don't know, I think that's a funny nickname. But yeah, uh, post the 2011 hack, we had Jesse Powell and Roger Vere swoop in to help Marco Palace in solving the problem of the hack and getting the site back up and running and keeping the company solvent and thriving. Well, as close as you can be to thriving after being hacked. 25,000 Bitcoin down the toilet. But anyway, so they came along and they were super determined to fix the problem. And 
Roger Ver kind of infamously reported retrospectively that Marco Pallas was more wrapped up in his Bitcoin cafe, which was his passion project at the time, where he was trying to set up a cafe where you could buy coffee and snacks and stuff and pay for pay for those snacks and coffees and stuff and Bitcoin. Yeah, Roger Ver basically just said that he was really wrapped up in that and that it seems and it seems like a very French way to deal with the problem when after watching Emily in Paris, but he basically took the weekend off when the site was down just because he didn't really feel like he needed to work through the weekend to save his uh, save his company, whereas Jesse Powell and Roger Vier were like, well, we need to get this site back up and running. It's not like you can really take a day off when you've got investors hanging on the end of the line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose those are, those are the notable, that's the notable juicy tea from that hack. Um, but unfortunately, the 2011 hack was not the only hack that Mt. Gox suffered. And I think it's important to note as well is that with the subsequent hacks, it wasn't just a singular event. Um, it was more of, uh, I suppose, kind of like water coming through a cracked seam. Like there was money flowing out of Mount Gox for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a few reasons for that. And I think I'll let you explain that, um, Nikita. We've talked, we haven't really talked about how bad the security was on Mount Gox, but that was because of how much control Mark Capellas wanted for himself. And he was really the only person who was allowed to approve changes and, basically give the all clear on the code and there's this thing called version control software which I feel like you'll be better talking about than I will be which is pretty standard I, I I think on Bitcoin exchanges or like any kind of online entity but maybe you could talk about to the version control software right so the version control software is like a google doc pretty much mm-hmm. for code mm-hmm. so what makes Google Docs so much better than Microsoft Word is that you can like track changes and you can, if someone has made a change like five days ago, you can look up the history mm-hmm. of that document and see who like, who made the change and what time and you can revert changes basically. Mm-hmm. And you can also suggest changes and so that the person, like the owner of the doc can either reject the changes or accept the changes, which can be really useful too. And so version control software is basically like that, where you, there's like an owner of the code and that might be the CEO or the CTO or like someone higher up in the company and they accept or, or approve like the changes that their developers are making. And so usually they'll like test um, the code before they approve all the changes. Sure. And that's, it's just, when you're in a software company, version control software is a must have. Holy grail. Yeah, holy grail. And not having version control software is pretty fucking amateur. <laughs> like, even undergraduate programmers in their first year will be using version control software Mm. so to not use it and I mean this was 2011 so I can maybe cut them a little slack because it was you know 10 years ago but Mm. still. So do you think that Mark Pellis lack of version control software was more to do with like a narcissistic I want to control what's going on here or do you think it's just blatant incompetency? 
Well, maybe a mixture of both. <laughs> no idea, because I guess on his CV it says he's a software engineer, so I expect that he would, like, I don't, I don't think he's completely incompetent. I mean, he mm. was able to run an exchange, and it's mm. not, it's not, like, you do have to have some technical skills, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe he was just lazy. Yeah. I, I guess that's the only thing I can think of, because, like, any software developer should know this. And, sure, it's, like, a little bit harder to use version control software, but it's not really. It's not really a big trade-off, I suppose, when you're dealing with that amount of money, that yeah. amount of people's money. I guess the way I'd put it is, like, imagine you are writing your essays on notes, mm. like your iPhone notes, mm -hmm. and it might be a little easier for, like, the short term, yeah. but long term it's going to be really annoying. Mm. And maybe he was, like, writing his code on, like, the equivalent of notes. Yeah. And he was just kind of lazy. Yeah. That's kind of how I'm picturing it. Yeah. I know him. I suppose this is kind of what we're going to do later in the podcast, but since I've thought of this now, it's better to bring it back to it. But um, I remember watching the the hearings for FTX and the guy who disassembled Enron, the liquidator, mm -hmm. basically talked about how shitty FTX's accounting systems and just their systems in general for keeping track of people's money and different transactions was just so shit and it was done over basically I don't remember what the app was called but it was like WeChat or something of that nature and that there was nothing really you know put into a system where documents could be followed and amended and checked and mm. recorded and I think that's unfortunately seems to be a bit of a, a theme that runs through big crypto hacks or big crypto failures is just disorganization incompetency and just a lack of care or diligence for the amount of money that they're dealing with and the amount of people like people's lives really yeah i, I think I feel kind of called out because like I use so many different softwares for just like writing like I use Microsoft Word just specifically with my like goal planning mm. I'm like use I'm using pen and paper I'm using Microsoft Word I'm using Google Docs I'm using notes yeah and like <laughs> Google Keep and I'm using another app called Notability yeah and I feel super called out. I don't think that like <laughs> you should feel called out though. I think I think there's this very stark difference between managing your own documents. I mean, you're one person on your own path. It's yeah. fine if you make goals on on different in different places and in different formats. But it's very easy to to say, oh, I'm, I'm Nikita and I'm gonna I'm writing this down here, so I'll remember that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're playing with big bucks for a lot of investors, it's multiple not, people. Yeah, it's a really it's such a different story. And I suppose it's not just the financial industry that has to be vigilant about that kind of thing. I can imagine if a law firm was yeah. conducting their relations through just email and then not really not storing those emails or not mm -hmm. filing the information they're giving to their clients and documents and basically making sure that their ducks are in a row. They yeah. would run into the same problems in a different way. But it is, yeah, I suppose drawing back to Mt. Gox, it does seem pretty crazy that someone who's dealing with that amount of money on that scale is just either incompetent or doesn't care or 
is too concerned with their control over their own company yeah. and too unwilling to let anyone else take the reins or, you know. Or just pure lazy. Yeah. yeah. Laziness could be laziness. There's just so many, so many unanswered questions, I suppose. But I think the main thing to, to walk away with is just the fact that they did not have the measures in place mm-hmm. to protect their... Their code. Their code, yeah. yeah. So, going back to a really important aspect of how the hack happened, like, literally, someone, and we have we have theories about who this someone is, but someone from Russia, supposedly, hacked into their system. And this guy's, like, a notorious hacker for, like, basically getting people's shit Mm -hmm. and he went into their systems and there was like a document literally with a private keys and not your keys not your crypto you can't call anyone and be like my keys were stolen help Mm. me because if someone gets your keys you're 100% Fucked. Yeah, royally fucked. It's definitely not as easy as when you have money stolen from you from your bank account. Yeah. Or have a hack or a Or someone gets your credit card. You yeah. always call it the credit card company. And yeah. Like, Someone's stolen this, that yeah. and the other and they normally there's normally a, a right or a remedy that you can yeah. get for yourself. But once your crypto's gone, it's really in, in the ether. So well, once <laughs> your private key has been found out by someone else any money that flows into that account automatically automatically is like the the hackers mm, so you can definitely see how that would very quickly become a problem for someone who was conducting yeah. all of their transactions in bitcoin which yeah. is someone in el salvador who's using bitcoin day to day and gets paid from their employer in bitcoin and does all their transactions in bitcoin like it really makes mm. a bad situation a lot worse very quickly but and yeah. the other thing is crypto exchanges back then aren't as kind of sophisticated as they are now. Mm. I shouldn't say that crypto exchanges are sophisticated today, but like they aren't, they were a little bit more rough around the edges. Yeah, a bit more of the wild west. Yeah, and so there would be people who would send their money to an address, basically. Like send, they would convert the crypto and send it to an address. A specific address mm-hmm. and that would be the crypto exchanges address I'm not sure if Mount Gox publicly announced that do not use this address or like do not yeah had the big red banner on their website yeah, or whatever it money was. and I don't even know if like the developers or the people working at Mount Gox knew I assume they did mm. but anyway the money was still flowing into these accounts where the private keys yeah I like, suppose it's tantamount to like going and depositing money in a bank while there's robbers out the back, just, like, yeah. underneath the counter, taking your money, and it's yeah. gone. It's, like, 100% like that was what was happening. Mm. Except, as we said before, you're not likely to get it back. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much impossible to get it back once it's gone. So this whole time, from 2011, yeah, there's just, like, this Russian guy at the end of it with his, like, mouth wide open. Mm. Yeah. And we should name and shame him because it's all alleged, you know. We, we and this know. is alleged. Mm. Yeah. And he's in prison right now for all these phishing attacks. Yeah. Um, like just email phishing attacks. Mm-hmm. And so he's got the smarts to really carry out an operation of this Absolutely. extent. Particularly when you're talking about someone who doesn't put any 
real controls into their... Yeah. I kind of want to wind back a bit because we didn't actually name and shame. Oh, we didn't? No. Oh, okay. Well, let's wind back. Um, <laughs> Alexander Vinnick. Alexander, Alexander Vinnick. Vinnick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he created the... Sorry, it was a ransomware, not, not a phishing thing. Mm-hmm. He was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison mm-hmm. in France recently for his ransomware and so the police the authorities were able to prove that yes this guy is in charge of the it's called the locky ransomware and basically mm-hmm. he would send like emails people would accidentally download something well not accidentally he, they would download something that would encrypt all their files and they yeah. couldn't decrypt them without paying like a, a ransom charge mm. So, yeah, he became very, very rich through this. And he also allegedly ran an exchange based in Russia called BTCE, which is also, I'm not sure if it still exists, but it's also, it was also a really big exchange. Mm -hmm. And so, because the blockchain is public, there's a lot of similarities between Bitcoin that was sent to BTCE Mm. and the funds from Mount Gox that were kind of dribbling out and you can see that all kind of gets funneled through BTCE oh my gosh that's crazy to all these like different wallets so that's why there's like a pretty strong feeling that Vinnick Alexander is the guy behind the Mount Gox hack yeah or at least the bit like a large part of it yeah but being able to prove that in court is an entirely different matter. Yeah. And so they've been able to convict him on, like, the Lockie ransomware, but maybe it'll be, like, a few more years until yeah. they're able to convict him of other yeah. charges. Well, they haven't really they haven't charged him with it yet as well, so I suppose it's, it's a matter, yeah, yeah, of gaining enough evidence for prosecution. Roaring back to 2013-2014, when the money has been seeping out of Mount Gox for a long time, kind of unnoticed by investors. So people are still putting money in whilst the money is going out the other side from the hacks that haven't been resolved. And it seems like for Mount Gox, once they cut off one head, two grow in its place. And at the end of the day, when all's said and done and the extent of the theft had come to light, they had lost 460 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's the equivalent of 850,000 Bitcoin at the time. Like now, today's? No, no, that was back then. So they, so then there was 850,000 Bitcoin stolen uh, worth a total of 460 million US dollars. Right. So a pretty colossal collapse. Yeah. Then that kind of leads us to now there are a lot of creditors of Mount Gox mm-hmm. around the world, mm-hmm. but they, I think there was a, some debate around like, because obviously Bitcoin's gone up since 2014, mm-hmm. at what valuation should they be repaid? Because mm-hmm. now Mount, Mount Gox can only, I think they managed to get back some of the Bitcoin that was stolen or they managed to kind of retrieve some somehow and they still have yeah. some like a lot of Bitcoin that they can repay with. Mm-hmm but not enough to cover today's valuation, but they can cover, like, 
2014's valuation of uh, what was stolen. Yeah. That's definitely a very interesting question. And there is still litigation pending. Yeah. Um, and one of the big lawsuits that still hasn't found a resolution 10 years on, more than, <laughs> is Coinlabs. And I think you should talk to that a little bit, Nikita. Yeah, so Coinlabs was a former business partner with Found Gox in the really early years. And apparently they got fucked over by Mount Gox. Mm -hmm. Um, Who knows what the truth is, but it seems like a pretty amateur organization Mm -hmm. in the beginning anyway. Now Mount Gox is suing, or was suing, no, sorry, Coinlabs was suing Mount Gox for like 16 billion. 16 billion? Woo! Yeah. Craziness. Was that I, for, like, the current value of Bitcoin that would have been I, No, I think it was something to... Uh, like, I don't think they even had Bitcoin involved. I think it was so just, it was like, over losses. some, like, like business losses. Like, they stole our idea, like, kind of debate. Intangibles. But, like, you know, Coinlabs saw an opportunity and they fucking went for it. Yeah. They were just like, Mount Gox has all this money and they're owed lots and that everyone hates them. And they have some Bitcoin to, like, repay mm-hmm. investors. And we're going to go after them. Yeah. And, like, just get as much money as we can. And I think Coinlabs became hated by creditors and, like, people who were familiar with the matter because it's, like, actually, it's the people who had Bitcoin with Mt. Gox that lost their money. Mm. Not... Not the big institutions who have enough money to become litigious. So them coming in for a $16 billion lawsuit or whatever. And $16 billion is ludicrous. Yeah. You know that quote that they had at school, like, shoot for the stars and you'll land on the moon? Yeah. It's kind of, it's, this is giving me, like, Coinlabs vibes. <laughs> because they just went for $16 billion, I bet they'll get, like, $100 million paid, or maybe they already have. Yeah. And and then the creditors will be, like, left with less money to go around them. Mm. And that really sucks for creditors. Yeah, it does. And I think... This is the same story reconstituted in so many different such scenarios when businesses go bust is that usually it's just a big, nasty dogfight between big institutions, whether they're involved in like a hack episode or not, um, to fight over the crumbs of what's left. <laughs> and very often unsecured creditors, because... Uh, I'm not an expert in insolvency law, but the reason that big institutions often will get first pickings of whatever's left over after a business becomes insolvent and goes into liquidation is because there's different levels of security when you can get a basically what order you are in, what priority you are in when a business goes bust is based on the level of creditor you are. So if you're a secured creditor, that's kind of the top of the list, and that means that you get right of first refusal to any money. But some someone, like in the context of Mt. Gox, someone who had invested their money and bought $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, is pretty low on that list because they don't have like a collateral which backs their investment, so they mm. fall very low on the creditors list comparatively to some big institutions which have, you know, collateralized, like, investments yeah. in, in the business. But, yeah, I think... Coming back to our, what I think we were talking about was just how unlikely it is for you 
as a creditor and like an individual creditor in a big business like Mount Cox. It's very difficult to keep the money back, mm. which I think is very sad because particularly back then, but even now we've seen, we've seen stuff like FTX happen is that it doesn't really seem like the people who are running these businesses have any idea how much responsibility they have to mm. their creditors and to their investors. Mm. Um, there was a Wired article that said something really poignant about the whole Mt. Gox situation where it really highlighted how suddenly these computer geeks were being handed a lot of power that traditionally like investment bankers or men like but people with business majors would mm. usually have a feeling of greater responsibility and the people skills and the other skills that like are necessary to run a business mm -hmm. and with crypto and blockchain becoming more and more big every day sometimes there these cracks have been shown in the certain personalities that are now running big businesses mm. namely computer nerds and I have nothing against computer nerds but like they typically do lack a skill which is necessary for running a business like, yeah I think also when you get to the point where you're dealing with like that amount of money is that it kind of masks you know you can't really put a, an individual to face to that portion of the money and mm. I suppose that's what makes it easy to become so greedy yeah <laughs> because people like a lot of these big failures in crypto have been kind of predicated by a huge amount of greed and a huge amount of over leveraging or just gross negligence like the case was in, in Mt. Gox. Um, yeah. there's, there needs to be more regulation that surrounds how people deal with big amounts of money. Maybe just hiring like a business manager. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah, because like Jesse Powell, who helped Mount Gox in their 2011 hack, who, mm. came, who flew over from San Francisco, he later became the founder of Kraken, which we discussed. Mm -hmm. And he recently resigned a few months ago, citing that he didn't really enjoy the day-to-day -day management and auditing and all these like regu like regulatory tasks that he had to do, and that he really wanted to be more involved with the actual product and mm. making the product. Mm. And like just basically being a developer mm -hmm. and I think this is interesting because people's personalities suit different jobs and like I I totally can understand him where he feels like he wants to just work on this aspect and he doesn't actually want to be involved with the business part mm -hmm. which is an essential part mm -hmm. and perhaps it was the case that Mark Capellas didn't like the business side of things and he was like way more focused on creating creating something or creating products or maybe he should have been like been making the Bitcoin cafe instead mm. of being tasked in charge of that. Yeah, that's a really good point and it does matter a lot what team you have and what skills your team has. Mm. But I think, I don't think that Mark Capellas went to jail, did he? Mm. I don't know. He was in Japanese jail for a little bit and then he got released on bail. Mm. And now... White collar crime, eh? Yeah. And he basically got a slap on the wrist. I mean, he's still active on Twitter. He's still, like, running around wherever he is. Yeah. And 
What was I going to say about... I think Mount Gox was so monumental that in the crypto world, because it was the first really big incident mm. where legal authorities were like, oh my god, this crypto thing, we've got to keep an eye on this. Yeah. And that was so interesting at the time. Yeah. And suddenly governments, like one Mount Gox happened, governments all around the world and because this Mount Cox failure happened in Japan, but investors from all around the world were, like, affected, mm -hmm. that world governments actually started communicating about, like, what are we going to do? Mm. And because of Mount Cox, Japan actually is pretty on the ball with, like, crypto regulations. Yeah. Compared to... 99% of other countries, and the US is also really on the ball with it. Mm, and it seems like Singapore is going through that mm. kind of cycle at the moment with 3RS Capital, and yeah. there's another big... Is it Korea's Do, Do Kwan? Who, he was the founder of Terra Luna. Oh. He's Korean, and the Korean authorities want his head. Mm, I can imagine. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. It is sad, I think, a lot of... And I don't... I don't want to give the, the governments an out by mm. saying that it's such a fast-moving industry and that does make it very difficult to regulate well and to regulate for long-term because you have to make it super broad to capture any potential future developments. But so much of regulation, I mean, just generally, but crypto, <laughs> crypto particularly, comes as a reaction to mm. big fuck-ups. And I think this past year that we've had, 2022, with the amount of failures and hacks and money lost and people really who lose all of their money, mm -hmm. <laughs> there'll be, in the next few years, a lot of very stringent regulation that might actually slow down the, the evolution of the industry, which is sad because it's, there's a lot of exciting things happening, but it's also like maybe we do need to slow down. Maybe this is moving too fast. Mm. I think regulations which like maybe slow an industry which is moving at the speed of light is, you know, maybe a good thing. Yeah. Well, everything happens for a reason. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what, what happens, but I think... We could really do a whole series on crypto fails and crypto scams. We could just become a crypto scam podcast. Crypto fail oh, podcast. I don't know. <laughs> we might get a bit bored of it after two or three episodes. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, crypto scams are really interesting, but... They are. They're... It's, it's a great learning experience for sure. And like, yeah. it definitely teaches you how, like, what to... If you are interested in crypto investing, like, it does teach you a lot of things. Yeah. Absolutely. I think with any crypto, because we know how difficult it is to get it back and how susceptible you are regardless, regardless of what system you use, there's always a risk, is maybe to like have your crypto assets in diverse places, like maybe have some money that's stored in like a decentralized exchange exchange or like and obviously you want to store it in your wallet but like use a decentralized exchange um for some of your purchases and but i suppose the big thing is keep your crypto in your wallet <laughs> yeah. that's one big thing don't type your keys in a 
website asking you to reset your keys. But <laughs> guess what? You can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, yeah, maybe another good tip is to have multiple wallets and never really store too much in yeah. one place because accidents happen. Mm. People aren't perfect. Like, you're really kidding yourself if you think you're never going to pick a click on a phishing scam in your life with how advanced AI and computers have become. I would say store like your crypto wallets like gold bars. Yeah. Like you're not just going to leave your gold bar lying around. You're going to put it into a safe. Yeah. And even some of the real crypto enthusiasts, they'll have a laptop that has never been connected to the internet. Mm. And keep it in like a locked basement. Yeah. And like a cold, a cold, literally like cold basement. Not like the computer has never like touched the internet. And I'll store their crypto keys <laughs> there. And then they'll have another layer. They'll have a hardware wallet with some crypto funds on mm. it that they just store in their locked drawer. Yeah. And then they'll have like a hot wallet, which mm. is an app on their phone or something that mm-hmm. they use for like day to day crypto transactions. Yeah. And so they'll have three or four multiple layers of security and mm-hmm. they'll obviously store most of their assets on the most secure one mm-hmm. and just a little bit on like their less secure ones. Yeah, I think that's a good tip. It's just to really put as much security in place as is possible. As is necessary, as like like given your Given exposure. your invest, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> We're so cautious. I think that's how, like, like the ble- a blessing and a curse. I never want to see anyone go through losing losing a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know. But I, th- I think most people who are really into crypto are actually really, really cautious. Mm-hmm. To be your own bank is, mm. is a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Women are already so freaking oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> Like, don't, I don't want to, like, put women through more shit. Like, if you can get some free info and not, like, have to go through losing your money. Yeah. That's, like, like, enough for us. (laughs) Yeah. I think, also, people are naturally cautious in a bear market because they're expecting something to go wrong. Mm -hmm. I think when shit really hits the fan is when things are going really well. You know? Like... People are like leveraging themselves on crypto exchanges, hoping for a return of eighteen percent in a bull market because mm. that's what everyone's getting, and it's, it seems to be on the up and to the moon. And there's so much hype, and you know you can get into these echo chambers where you're like, I mean, I've definitely bought. I mean, not crypto necessarily, but I've bought stocks on the hype of the bull mm-hmm. wave, and it's inevitably in every in any situation that I've done that I've ended up on the back foot yeah and yeah I suppose it's just my tap I suppose is just to realize that you're naturally going to be cautious in a bear market but you've got to really watch your emotions when you're in a bull market because mm. it's very easy to get swept up into the tidal wave, wave of positivity yeah well professional investors they study the psychology of investing about rational investing mm-hmm. they study history like crazy 
going back to the 1800s and 1900s mm. and like studying the history of money and what kind of scams were like created mm. any good investor or professional investor on wall street will know that mm. and like it's their their literal job to know mm. about these things mm. so now we're coming into the age of retail investors and mm. retail investors are like just everyday people like you and me mm. who aren't necessarily professional investors but we're like managing our own money because mm. we don't want to pay management fees to mm. like an investment brokerage broker, broker yeah. or something but like there is sort of a price you pay to that yeah which is you have to educate yourself mm -hmm. and invest the time mm. into educating yourself mm. and for some people that might be fun and that might be like worthwhile to do mm -hmm. And if maybe if you're someone and you're like, I really, really hate learning about this stuff. Yeah. I'd rather just read, like, fiction. <laughs> yeah. At that point, you're really just gambling your money. You're gambling and you should probably stick. I don't know. I'm not going to give out investment advice. Um, you <laughs> should you should seek advice from an advisor or, mm -hmm. like, go with a professional investment company or something. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Because yeah. doing... Invest investing mm. in anything without background knowledge and education is just gambling. Yeah. There's really no way around that, and there's no way you can justify yourself, justify your way out of that if you really know nothing about what you hold. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, of course, we're talking about like crypto in the sense of like cryptocurrency in this podcast, and blockchain and crypto is so much bigger than that. But if you are like really interested in blockchain in the context of cryptocurrency, you do have to have a level of curiosity that is elevated above maybe just someone who likes blockchain mm. and like just wants to know a little bit more about that. Like if you are investing, do your own research, talk to a financial advisor if, if you feel that's necessary or, you know, there's lots of things that you can yeah. do to make sure that you're being safe and um, being prudent in your investment. But yeah, and slay the house down boots. <laughs> what? You know, you slay the house down boots, pussy queen. Where'd you get that? You've never heard that? Oh. It's like a meme. I thought I definitely said that around you, but maybe not. I feel like I'm 40 around you. <laughs> oh, well, I feel like sometimes I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Not when it comes to crypto. Slay the house down boots. What? Slay the house down boots. It does. You've just got to say it with some gusto. Slay the house down boots. Yeah, it's like when you're like when you've really done a good job or something, or like just in any situation where it's like mean, you're like slay the house down boots. Um, yes, Queen Skinny Legend Versace boots the house down. Slay Queen Hunty Mama and Oop Daddy work Charlie X yet snatch my wig. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time. And be careful, but curious, always. Long sex. CGHQ. XOXO. <laughs> CGHQ. <laughs>
Investment in securities, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and other asset classes involves risk, and no information in any episode of Crypto Girls HQ is intended to constitute an investment recommendation. As such, this podcast should not be treated or relied upon as financial, investment, legal, accounting, tax, or any other professional advice, and is broadcasted for informational and educational purposes only. In the interest of disclosure, the participants in this podcast, including Crypto Girls, hold various crypto assets across a range of platforms, some of which are mentioned in this podcast. For more information, please see our legal disclaimer at www.cryptogirlshq.com legal.